we've been in this series now for the last um, couple of weeks since since the beginning of the year, and and we're going to be continuing in it this morning. And I want to begin. Uh, we're not going to hold back this morning. I'd love to begin by diving straight into the Word of God. Um, we've got a lot to get through this morning, and so if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter three, and we're going to be picking up in verse twenty-six. Um, if you haven't got a Bible with you, don't worry. There should be um, this. Verses should appear on the screen behind me as I read them. Um, but I'd love to encourage you, if you've got a Bible, to, to get it, whether it's on your phone or whether it's a hard copy. So I always think it's good for us to be familiar with the text ourselves. So starting in verse 26, this is what Paul says to the Galatian church. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees, but until the time set by, the fa- by his father... So also, when we were children, we were under slavery, under the principle, basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. I'm just going to stop there. And I'd, love to, I'd just love to pray before we get into this text. Lord God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the truth of scripture that as we read it, it reveals to us who you are. As we read the scriptures, Lord, uh, this morning as we delve into this, would you speak to us? with the spirit that you've put in us, um, cry out. And would it cry out, Abba, Father. So Lord, I thank you as you've led me in preparing this talk today, and I just pray that you would take the words that are written here as I share them, and I pray that you would just speak truth into our hearts this morning, that we would be changed and set free. Amen. Amen. You know, we've called this series Living Free because one of the central themes of the book of Galatians is freedom. You know, some commentators have even called the book of Galatians the gospel of freedom. But being set free is only half of the story of the gospel. You know, the final verse that I read from today's passage, Galatians 4, 7, says, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. And this is what I want to invite us to consider this morning, above all things, the new identity that we've been given and what it looks like for us to live in that new identity. And so I've called this talk from slavery into sonship. You see, we're not just freed from something, we're we're freed for something. God doesn't just set us free, he goes so much further than that. He brings us home and he adopts us into his family. It's like we're Like, imagine being a prisoner. Imagine you've done something wrong in your life and you've gone to jail and someone comes along one day and you've got nothing. Everything you've had has gone away. And and someone comes along and purchases your freedom for you. 
And in that moment, you, they might open the prison doors and let you go free. But what are you going into freedom? You know, you might go, I've got no house. I've got no, I've got no possessions. I've got nothing to my name. But the person who set you free comes and says, I want to take you home. I want to clothe you. I want to robe you. I want to give you everything I've got. Come and be part of my family. That is a picture of what is going on here. Not only are we no longer slaves, now we are ch God's children. In Christ, our identity changes. And this is huge. This, this, for me, is the crux of what Paul is talking about when he's talking about freedom in Galatians. Because we are only able to live out our God-given destiny to the extent that we realize our God-given identity. It is knowing who we are that um, it is in knowing who we are that we are able to live freely. So as we're talking about living free, I feel like that comes from a place of knowing who we are. Free from striving to prove yourself based on your achievements and your possessions. Free from the fear of not being good enough or worthy of love. Free from letting other people's opinions define who we are. You know, this is what Paul was speaking about last week when he did part two. How we have been set free by faith and we no longer have to strive to earn God's affection and his rightness. I think in the world today, you know, due to things like the internet and social media and just the sheer level of global communication, that how we define and identify ourselves has never been more talked about. Just, and even just seeing the way that others are being talked about, it's just right in front of us. If we go onto Twitter or Instagram or social media or open the newspapers, people's identities are on display for all to see. And the question over what our identity is has never been more talked about. These days, society tells us we are free to be whoever we want to be and that we can decide how to identify ourselves, whether that's our sexuality or our gender, the political party we support, where we live, the job that we have, our nationality. The list is almost endless and it's growing. You know, what you identify as, what do you identify as has become... Um, one of the most topically discussed questions in the, in, the in, in the West today, I think. And the list of answers to that question of what do you identify as just keeps growing. I don't know how it keeps growing, but it does. There's like a new category almost every week that you hear about. Some of you might recall, I think we mentioned it a few times in a previous um, series, uh, last year a Dutch gentleman who decided that rather than being the legal age that he was, rather than being um, the age that he was legally, he wanted to change to be identified as, as a different age. He was 60 years old, but he wanted to identify as a 40-year-old. You might have read that story. I remember, I don't know what age you're picking for yourself this morning. Oh, I might go with 21, I'm 21 today, um, if that's okay. And I remember reading an article a few months ago about Emma Watson, who was the um, actress who played Hermione in Harry Potter. And she's gone on to do lots of things since then. She's a lot in the news a lot for all different things. But I remember reading an article where she declared that rather than being single or in a relationship, she now identifies as being self-partnered. I mean, that's a category of identity. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be self-partnered? As I read it, I was like, that doesn't even make sense. Surely... Your relationship, as a self, you are one, but to be partnered, there must be two. So self-partner just doesn't make sense. And I feel like it's getting out of control, almost to the point where everybody in the world will say, well, I'm my own category of identity. I am unique. And there is truth in that. 
but we keep trying to separate ourselves. People are searching for an answer. Now, in so many ways, this is nothing new. You know, every culture has wrestled with a sense of identity. And the reason for that, I believe, is because we have an enemy. We have an enemy whose greatest strategy is to confuse us about our identity. Because he knows that if you ever see who you are, you can actually become who you are. If you see who you are, you can become who you are. And he loves to confuse that. And we can trace this back through all of human history, right back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when the snake um, comes to Eve and says, eat this fruit and you shall be like God. What a deception. You know, we know from, the, uh, from Genesis 1 that, the, that Adam and Eve already were like God. What a lie. So all throughout human history, the enemy has been confusing us about our identity. It's his number one strategy. It's the way he stops us from becoming who God had made us to be. And my feeling is that the place we find ourselves in today, with so much scope to define ourselves in so many different ways, has left people feeling at a loss about who they identify themselves as. And I think the society we live in is in the middle of a cultural identity crisis. People are desperately searching for something to put their identity in, someone to tell them who they are, to give them purpose, recognition, acceptance, even to find love and fulfillment. People are searching. But where are the answers? If you're a believer, if you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus, then your identity doesn't come from within you or from the world around you. Your identity comes from God. Alan Scott, the pastor of Anaheim Vineyard in California, says this, you can never truly know who you are until you see yourself the way God sees you. And that's, that's a big statement, isn't it? Just take that in for a moment. You can never truly know who you are until you see yourself the way God sees you. What does that mean for the world that doesn't know God? That's searching for an identity. When does that pursuit ever end? At the heart of embracing the freedom of the Christian life is realizing the truth that is found in the opening verse from today's passage, Galatians 3.26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Here Paul is saying that we who believe are already sons. It's not something we're aiming for. It's not a future goal. It's not something that we have already. It is our present state. But it's important that we recognize that we are only called sons of God through faith in Jesus. And I want to make this distinction clear this morning, because not everyone in the world is a son or daughter of God. That might sound a bit controversial. We are all his creation. We are all made in his image. But, it's only, but we only become his children through faith in Jesus. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. He said that himself in John 14, 6. So not everyone is a child of God. Only those who are born again by the Spirit of God are called sons and daughters of God. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Bible is really clear about this. Sonship comes only through faith in Jesus. 
And at this point, I just want to make a quick aside about that language of sonship. You know, some translators prefer to use the term children rather than sons when they're translating the Greek in order to make, make it really clear that women are included in the terminology. But that is almost something of an overcorrection in the translation because Paul is being really intentional about the use of the language of sons. He's not discrediting women or saying that they're not included in this. And the danger is that in changing the word as we translate it from the Greek to make it sound more inclusive, we may miss the point and the heart of what he's trying to say. You see, in most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, the word son is important and intentionally used by Paul because it refers to becoming a legal heir. That's the point he's trying to make. And he makes it clear in verse 28 that we'll get onto that, that men and women and slaves and um, those who are free and Jews and Greeks, they're all included in this. He's not making that point. But the word son is about being a legal heir. That is the point that Paul is making that in Christ, everyone is a son. Everyone has the rights of a son. Everyone who believes will receive the spirit of sonship. That is men and women, everyone. So when Paul speaks about believers becoming sons and receiving adoption of sonship, he isn't dismissing or excluding women. He is making a point about inheritance. And I hope that's helpful. I just want, you might be aware of that, but I just wanted to clear that up. So let's just return back to the um, passage Picking up in verse 28, Paul goes on to say, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As Paul, um, who spoke last week, shared, one of the problems that Paul was addressing through this letter to the Galatians was division in the church. He was writing to Gentile Christians who had been influenced by Jewish Christians who came insisting that the new believers must adopt their traditions that were in line with the Jewish law in order to please God. The, the Gentile Christians had come to faith, faith through grace and through accepting Jesus as Lord. And now these Jewish Christians were coming and saying, in order to satisfy God and fulfill your salvation, you need to start doing these laws. And Paul was really angry about this because he saw that it was leading the Galatians away from the gospel that they had responded to in the first place, one where they were saved by faith and not by works. And th again, this is what Paul was unpacking last week. And these divisions arose because of a cultural difference in the early church. You know, we had new believers who were Gentiles and Greeks and not of the Jewish background um, coming into contact with people who were their, their, their history and their ancestry was, in, was wrapped up in Judaism and in the culture of that time. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the things that we define ourselves by, whether that's nationality or culture or the names, often these are the things that separate us. So whether you're English or Welsh, for example, or you voted leave or remain, or whether you're a vegan or a vegetarian or a pescatarian or a fruitarian or a herbivore or a carnivore, or, or my new favorite is a vegan. I discovered that this week. A vegan. Anyone know a vegan? Vegans are vegans who eat honey. <laughs> Did you even know that category existed? found it online. I mean, I don't know if it was a reliable source, but I'll claim it. <laughs> Vegans. Come chat to me afterwards if you want to 
decide whether that's something to pursue. We'll pray. My point is, the, ident- the identities we might align ourselves with are often to highlight what makes us different. But here in these verses, in verse 28, Paul is encouraging the believers to be identified by what unites them. He's saying here, in God's family, there is no division between culture, class, and gender, for all are one in Christ. Now, he's not saying that there are no longer differences. He's not denying that there is a Jew and a Greek, that there is male and female. But he's saying that as a believer, you are a Christian before you are anyone or anything else. That is your primary identity as a son of God. And therefore, the barriers that separate people all over the world come down in Christ. In Jesus, the barriers are stripped apart. Those divisions are gone. And he calls us to unity as sons and daughters of God. And that is what Paul was speaking into. That is why he sent this letter, because the divisions that were being caused by um, those different categories of identity. Now, we're gonna t- now, I want to turn our attention to the verses in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, the opening seven, chapters, uh, the opening seven verses of that chapter, because this is where I feel like the meat of my talk is this morning. This is where Paul starts to explain the shift from slavery to sonship. And as I've already explained in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is challenging um, Christians who have been... He's challenging what the Jewish Christians brought into their context, that they needed to follow these Jewish customs. And he is building a case to suggest that everyone whether they're Jew or Gentile, has sinned and fallen short of the law of God. And he uses this language of slavery and sonship. So verse 3, I want to pick up in verse 3. He says, we, When we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And he says something similar in Romans 3, uh, which reinforces this statement. He says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In suggesting that all have sinned and fallen short and need to be saved, Paul is, suge- Paul is saying that everyone is in sla- under slavery. Everyone is a slave. No one is excluded from that statement. And why a slave? Why is he using that language? Because being a slave is the opposite to being free. In Galatians, Paul is working really hard to make this point that living under the law was still a form of slavery because the law in and of itself couldn't lead people into freedom. The law could show you uh, what your sin was. It could point you towards your sin, but it was powerless to set you free from it. Now, there could be little argument that the Gentile Christians were slaves to sin before they came to faith. In fact, Paul makes this point really bluntly in Galatians 4 verse 8, saying, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves. It's really clear, isn't it? There's no, you can't argue with that statement. But to, the, to accuse the Jews of being slaves would have been a shocking accusation. You know, these were God, they were God's chosen people, the rightful heirs of the promises of Abraham. And we see how controversial this accusation is uh, by the reaction of the Pharisees in John 8 when Jesus makes a similar charge against them. Jesus said to them, If you hold to my teaching, you will be my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the Jews were incensed by this and declared, 
When we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone, how can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus responded by telling them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus doesn't differentiate between people and and cultural differences. Everyone can be a slave to sin. Everyone is a slave to sin before receiving him. So what about us? If everyone can be a slave, what are some of the things that we find ourselves enslaved to today? What defines a slave is being controlled by a master. And this is where it links with our identity. If your identity is in your career, then you become a slave to your career, putting emails and meetings before the time that you spend with your family, for example. If, if your identity is in wealth and accumulation, you become a slave to money, always wanting the next new thing, the latest iPhone, the biggest car, the next season's new gadget. If your identity is in your appearance, you become a slave to your wardrobe, your fitness regime, your skincare routine. Maybe that's mine, clearly. (laughs) If your identity is in your social media following, you become a slave to your Instagram account, living for the likes and capturing those moments rather than living in the moment. You know, as I... As I was writing this talk, and I've been churning it over the last couple of weeks, and then really tried to bring it together this week, and it's been a real battle. It's been a really, it's been a tough week. I literally said to Sophie yesterday, I don't want to go tomorrow. Can I phone in sick? And she was like, you're not allowed to phone in sick. And it's just, and it's no surprise. I'm talking about identity. I'm talking about being loved by the Father and knowing that. So it's no surprise that the enemy gets in. And as I'm writing it, and I was struggling with it, and just I had the concepts, but I couldn't get them on paper. And the lies of the enemy just came in and were just like, you're not good enough. You can't do this. You're not called to this. Literally yesterday I was saying, so it was like, am I even meant to be doing this? Am I even meant to preach? What, what I felt like was there was a realization for me that in this area of my life, I'm... I, I find myself being a slave to perfectionism. Not being able to let go of this talk until I feel like it's ready to deliver. And it's been been such a challenge to get to this point of standing up and sharing this today. And it's something I have to come back to God with. Something I have to return to him and say, is this area of my life, am I still a slave to this? Will you come and bring freedom in this area of my life? And as I've explored this, it's been amazing to just allow the Lord to just speak over me as we worship this morning and we sang um, good good father oh my oh it hit me the love of the father for me that it's not about what I stand up here and say to you today that isn't what um, this that's not what he bases his love and his affection for me on and we're going to look at that in a little bit more how he sees us so let me just ask you is there anything in your life right now that you can't stop doing that you can't stop thinking about or you can't bear the thought of being without? And is it healthy or is it controlling you? According to Paul, there's only one way out. This is at the heart of what Paul is getting at. All of us have fallen short, therefore all of us need to be saved and set free. And as we continue in verse 4, we see how that freedom was given. 
how we move from slavery into sonship. So verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. This is the gospel right here. And it tells us two things. Firstly, that Jesus is uniquely able to redeem us, redeem those under the law. This is the same word that he used for redeem in chapter 3, verse 13. And it means to release a slave from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price. And here the slave master is the law. Paul's saying that the slave master is the law and Jesus pays the full price of the law the price that we couldn't pay ourselves, he completely fulfills all the law's demands on us. And so he is able to set us free. He's the only one that's able to do that. Secondly, literally through Christ, we have received sonship. And this is a legal term. In the Greco-Roman world, a childless wealthy man could take one of his servants and adopt him. At that moment of adoption, he ceased being a slave and received all the financial um, benefits and legal privileges within the estate and outside the world, and outside in the world as the son and heir. Though by birth he was a slave without relationship with the father, he now receive, receives the legal status of a son. It is a new life of privilege. And this is a remarkable metaphor for what God has given us. As I said at the start, we aren't just set free uh, from something. We are set free for something. Our identity moves from slavery to sonship. Jesus redeems us, paying the full price for our sin, and he sets us free from our slavery. He then receives us as sons, meaning that we are fully entitled to share in the father's inheritance, in the son's inheritance in the kingdom of God. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says this, because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. So what does this look like? What does this mean? What does it mean for us to be God's son? What difference does that make for our lives? Well, for the ultimate model of sonship, we can look directly to Jesus, God's son. When Jesus was baptized, we are told in the Gospel of Mark that a voice was heard from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus knew three things for sure in that moment. One, he knew he was God's son. Two, he knew that his father loved him. And thirdly, he knew the father was pleased with him. He knew that he was God's son. He knew that he was loved. And he knew that his father was pleased with him. And the striking thing is that God spoke all of that over Jesus before he had done a thing. Before he had healed anyone, before he'd preached the gospel, before he'd raised anyone from the dead, before he'd even gone to the cross, he declared those things over Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Because God didn't love him for what he was going to do. He loved him for who he was, and he was able to do what he did because he knew who he was. I'll say that again in just a minute. All that Jesus went on to do flowed out of his relationship with the Father. His sense of identity was not based on his ministry, but the opposite. He did what he did because he knew who he was. And as sons of God ourselves, we can do the same. By knowing who we are, knowing that we're loved, 
And knowing that the Father, our Father in heaven is pleased with us, we can be all that we were created to be and live a life, of free, a life free from the slavery to sin. And Paul uses emotive language to convey the intimacy that we can have with the Father. In verse 6, he says, the Spirit calls out, Abba, Father. And the term Abba is an Aramaic word that Jesus used when he taught the disciples about the Father God. It's a term that would probably have been used in the home, an affectionate term. And our best translation is probably daddy. It's this affection, or as I like to call my dad when I go home, pops. I'm just like, hey, pops. So, you know, I don't call anyone else that, pops. That's my dad. And Paul is saying that when we become sons of God, we can have that level of intimacy with him as our father, the same level of intimacy that Jesus had. I remember reading a story about a little boy who managed to make his way all the way to the Oval Office without being stopped by anyone. He used the back entrance of the White House, navigated his way through the many corridors, confidently, confidently strode past the security staff, through the offices and right through the secret door into the Oval Office, where he then proceeded to march straight, up to the, straight past the Secretary of State hopped around the desk and went and sat on the president's knee. That little boy was the president's son. He was walking confidently through the White House as his home, on his way to see the father, who just happened to be the president of the United States. You know, there would have been people trying to get all access into some of those rooms, get the president's attention. And here you have this little boy who just strolls on through, goes into the room and sits down on his dad's, on his dad's knee. Because he knew who he was. He knew who his dad was. Now, I'm from Taunton in Somerset. That's where I came from. And my parents' house is certainly not as grand as the White House. But Soph and I go back as often as we can. And the last time we were back was just after Christmas. And I'm not going to lie, one of the best things about being home is having full access to my parents' fridge. It might show... You know, and, and especially because Douglases go big on Christmas. I mean, when, when we're not home visiting, it's my mum and dad are there, and you get home, you're like, do you guys need all this food? And they're like, oh, but we knew you were coming, <laughs> clearly. Um, so I just spend a few days when we're there, especially over Christmas, just picking through all the leftover treats for Christmas. You might do the same. And it's just amazing. Oh, it's glorious. In fact, this year, the fridge was so well stocked that when I went to open it, the door actually fell off. <laughs> and, and you kind of think that if that happened in anyone's house, you'd feel terrible. And I, I did feel a bit terrible, but you would, you would be like, I don't know what to do. What are they going to say? What are they going to think about me? And it was almost as if, as it happened, I knew that there would be no anger. I knew that there would be no frustration. And it was... It was almost comical the way that my parents came and laughed at it and were just like, how did that happen? And I'm just stood there with this door that's hanging off. They had to buy a new fridge. Luckily, the January sales were on. And my mum actually said, next time you come home, can you try opening the oven? Because I think they're looking to replace that as well. I love that. Anyway, I'm getting, getting lost down that. My point is that when we know that we're in our parents' house... And we know that we're loved. We can act with confidence and boldness and security. We feel safe and secure to be who we're made to be. And it's that kind of access that we have with God through Jesus. We are adopted as sons of the king and we have access to the throne of God. 
Ellie read this um, verse earlier, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. He's the king of the universe, and he knows and loves us deeply and calls us to an intimate and personal relationship with him. Isn't that mind-blowing? Doesn't that blow your mind? That's something to think about this week, isn't it? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's all well and good. I know all this. I've heard it before. People have spoken on this on a Sunday like you are over and over again. But how do I actually access that intimacy? How do I know that for myself? How does that go from being something I've heard people say to something I receive, believe, and experience for myself? I think the key is found in the fact that Paul tells us that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. He's so intentional about using those words. You know, he's writing this letter in Greek, but he still uses to use that Aramaic word because it speaks of something. And it, is, and it has to be through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit within us cries out, Holy Spirit. In order for us to have an intimate relationship with our Father God, we need to spend time in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to spend time whether that's reading the word of God, whether it's spending time in prayer. For some people, it will be silence and solitude. I think that is one of the, the best ways that we connect with God. How often do you slow down, just slow down and stop? Just switch off from everything that's going on. You might have to switch a lot of things off as well. Phones, TVs, radios, whatever it is. Switch it all off. How often do you do that and just intentionally spend a few moments of your day in his presence? I think if we're trying to learn how to spend time with the Father and know who we are, the practice of silence and solitude is so important for us to learn, particularly in this age of busyness and digital technology and just everything that's around us. Um, uh, at Christmas, my brother-in-law got me a set of noise-canceling headphones, and um, which was a complete surprise. I hadn't asked for them. Incredibly generous. And I, I put them in... And I was amazed at how they block the sound out. And then I was like, I really want this, but I don't really want to play the music through it. I just want to block the sound out. <laughs> and I'll like walk around the house and I'll try and find the quietest thing to play. I'll like turn the sound right down just so it's like the noise cancelling. And and recently, with Robin being born, so start encouraged me to start wearing earplugs in bed, which I never used to do. And so I found myself going through certain days with like these noise cancelling headphones. And then I get to bed at night and put these earplugs in. I'm like, I've almost been walking through the day with just silence. It's been amazing. And I noticed suddenly how noisy the world around me is when I had these. And so I think it's so important for us to learn how to do that, how to stop how to spend time with God in his presence. It's like any relationship with people in our lives. We have to invest time in it to build in intimacy. And we see this in Jesus. He often withdrew from busy places to spend time with his father, modeling to us what it looks like to be a son and spend time with him. And when we spend time with him, when we let the truth of our identity as sons take root in our hearts, when we know that we are loved and that our Father is pleased with us, then we are truly set free to be all that we were created to be. That's when we can stop trying to put our identity in anything else and confidently know who we are. There's one final point I just want to make and draw out from this passage before we finish. It's verse 7, or it's the end of verse 7 where it says, And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. 
So what is our inheritance as children of God? I often find this quite a complicated subject. It can feel quite ethereal. I know that we have the, the son's inheritance, that we inherit the kingdom and that there are glorious riches in heaven. And people say that, and I know it's amazing, but it just doesn't quite sink in and I can't quite comprehend what that means. But Paul says in, in Galatians 3.14 that the blessing of Abraham came upon the Gentiles and enabled them to receive the promise of the Spirit. And I believe part of our inheritance, particularly on this side of eternity, is that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And what greater inheritance could there be? As I was reading around the subject, I came across a story of a man who spoke at his father's funeral service about his inheritance. And he said this, The greatest inheritance my father left me was not what he had, but what he was. He was a man of integrity. He was humble and often admitted his own failures. He was, a gener he was generous and compassionate. Above all, he was a man of deep faith in God. That's the inheritance that I most treasure, the inheritance of the character of my father. As children of God, we can say the same. Our greatest inheritance is not an abundance of things that the Father gives us, but the character of his Son, which is the Spirit, which the Spirit is forming within us. And this is something that as we continue to explore, as we continue to journey through Galatians over the next few weeks, this is something we will be pressing into. So in finishing, this series is called Living Free. And my point today is that we're not just freed from something. We're also freed for something. I believe Alan Scott was right when he said that you can never truly know who you are until you see yourself the way God sees you. Jesus was able to do all that he did because he knew who he was. And we are only able to live out our God-given destiny to the extent that we realize our God-given identity. 1 John 3.1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That is what we are. So may we know the identity that we have as children of God, and may we learn to fully embrace the freedom that is available to us that takes us from slavery into sonship. If you're able to, why don't you stand?